Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Today I was going to be doing an episode on the very short-lived 1980s distribution company, MCEG. But instead, we're going to try something a little different today. My very first in-studio guest. Please welcome my brother-in-law, Michael Horrigan. Michael is a Ph.D. student at the Washington State University, yep. and he promises me that if I have him as a guest on my podcast, the listenership will double. Michael, challenge accepted. <laughs> okay, so, uh, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself, sir? Um, yeah, so I uh, formerly worked as an attorney very briefly and uh, decided that wasn't really working for me. And uh, teaching appealed to me, particularly at the college level, and so that was why I went back for the PhD. Um, and in terms of being here, um, I love movies, listen to the podcast, obviously. You know, your wife is uh, my sister, so you, know, you and I have known each other for quite some time at this point. I mean, because I knew you before you met her, actually, so. That is true. So we're going to talk about 80s movies, shockingly enough. So I threw this question to you a couple days ago to think about um, when you first got here, and so now here we are. Top five 80s movies, any nationality, any year, any genre, go. Okay, so when you... That sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Go ahead. Yeah, no. So when you threw it at me, I uh, was uncertain how exactly to think about the question. You know, I sort of figured, oh, this will be really simple right like top five movies of the 80s you assume you kind of look at a list and it should be pretty easy to pull it and i started to look at it and i thought to myself you know if you said 10 it's a really probably really easy but at five it becomes more of a question and so i had to come up with some criteria to really think about like how did i want to approach this and what i sort of settled on was favorites right the things that i come back to the most often right that might not what be what I would necessarily call the best films of the 80s, but the ones that resonate with me and that time and again are the ones that I want to watch when I think to myself, man, you know, I just, I need a movie right now that works for me. Uh, so on that level, sort of the first one that I thought of um, was My Neighbor Totoro. Uh, which obviously is one from the 80s. I highly doubt it was released in the U.S. at the time. You can uh, fill me in on that. I actually brought that up in my uh, Trauma episode a, f a few episodes back, that uh, Trauma actually released Totoro in America five years after it was released <laughs> in, in Japan. And in fact, uh, because it was not a typical Trauma movie, they even created a new label called 50th Street Films in order to separate it from what the trauma name had become in America. But if it hadn't been for the Toxic Avenger, they wouldn't have had enough money <laughs> to bring uh, to bring Totoro to America. So, yeah, it's a trauma movie. <laughs> Not exactly what one would generally think of as a trauma film. Nope. As you and I were discussing earlier, trauma tends to drag up certain feelings and Totoro sort of drags up the opposite version of those exact feelings. Um, where I don't feel dirty about myself <clears throat> when I want to watch it. In fact, I it's just so much of the joy of it, right? And the right. fact that it 
It is this different form of storytelling to what we typically get in most Western films where it has to be sort of antagonist driven, right? Like there is drama, there is plot to the film, but it has that sweetness because there's never anybody who's actively out to be mean or angry, right? There aren't villains in that traditional sense. So it lacks this, these villains, this, the, the tension comes from just this fear of children, right? And it, because the movie takes that perspective, takes that child's perspective, that's okay to not have to have it because there's still enough there, right? But at the end of it, it still says it's okay to be afraid of things, but also there are things that are going to look out for us, that are going to protect us. And it's family, or in this case, it's magical beings, but like that sweetness and warmth, just, I don't know, it always works for me. Like it, it resonates with me and it's why that's always been my favorite Miyazaki. Right, it's not necessarily the most big fun adventure one, right? Like, don't get me wrong, like another '80s one of his Castle in the Sky, right? I love Castle in the Sky, but when I'm thinking of the one I want to go back to, it's always, always Totoro. Yeah. It's just because that's just a warm bath of a film. Yeah, I actually I love the movie. It's been way too long since I've seen it because there are just so many movies that I still need to catch up with. I mean, here it is, November of 2020. I love Scorsese. I still haven't seen The Irishman yet because I've got so many things going on that I don't really have four hours to sit down in one sitting. And I don't like breaking up the movie, a movie into little bit pieces. And I 100% get that. And that's why I actually had the blessing of... Um... I was in Seattle when that was out in actual theaters mm. and the discount theater there uh -huh. is owned by Landmark. Right. Uh, and so Landmark, of course, has a deal with Netflix to show all their movies in their theaters. Is this the Metro? Uh, no, actually. So the one I ended up at was the Crest in okay. Seattle, which is out in like the North Seattle suburbs. Mm -hmm. It's great. It's three fifty for a showing. And they show all of those Netflix movies. So, of course, they had The Irishman. And I was like, you know, to your point, right, I didn't want to break it up at home. But it's often so hard to find that three and a half, four hour time block to really sit down and absorb it at home. I said, this is what I know I kind of need to really get this movie. And I'm so glad I did it because it's a, it's amazing. Yeah. It's so good. But I also know that if I had done that at home, it wouldn't have had the same effect on me because I would have felt that need to get up or walk around or right. do something. And so that hurts the film. It's not the film's fault. It's, and I was lucky to be able to avoid that. But I get your point when it's you want to be able to give those things those time. And so often it's difficult to do that. Because right. when I posed the question to you, top five, I started looking at the same thing. It's like trying to figure out what's my top five. So what I did is I went to my flick chart, which I've had for years, but I don't really keep up with that much. So I was looking at my top 20 and I'm sitting there and it's like, there are so many movies missing from what I feel is a top 20 film for me in the eighties. But I look at this list and I'm like, that's, that's a perfectly good list. And the order is almost perfect for me. For example, 
from just 16 to 20. I've got The Natural, The Untouchables, Field of Dreams, Local Hero, and The Right Stuff. And there's that's a top five in and of itself. There's those are just such great, fantastic movies, and um, and and it's like these again. These are movies that I like to go back to time and time again, or sometimes like with the right stuff again. Another extravagant, long, rich movie that it's been a long time since I've seen, but when it was out and when it was on video when I was younger and had time to absorb a three plus hour movie multiple times it was one of my absolute go-to movies you can't convince me that that movie was not probably the best picture of 1983 then and you're not going to be able to convince it of me now i used to know every single best picture winner and i can't think of the best picture winner for 19 oh actually it's terms of endearment it just came to me <laughs> And there's no way you can convince me Terms of Endearment is a better movie than The Right Stuff. But I look at my list and I think it's the top rated movie I have for 83. Just below, or actually it's just above Local Hero, which was also 83. You know, it's just like, but that's just the hard thing about these lists. And so uh, I'm going to have you do one of your top five and then I'll list some of mine and then we'll go back and forth. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, so... What's number, what's, and then I, of course I don't expect it, yeah. that's number one, that's number two, but what is yeah. your second of your top five? Yeah, no, 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 so these are of course in no order, right. um, but going off of your point, right, of talking about kind of these longer films, I'm going to point one out that I love that I fully acknowledge is a shaggy mess of editing, and that's the Blues Brothers. Oh, I love the Blues Brothers. I adore the Blues Brothers. Actually, that's, that's number eight on my <laughs> flick chart list of top movies of the 80s. I, I love like, the Blues Brothers. I adore the film because it is... Both a wonderful musical, right? It has like any one of the you can pull any one of the numbers out, and it'll immediately slay. It's just this absolute perfect thing. just goes to prove that point right and mm -hmm. then you've not only got all the musical numbers but then you've got if to, to be kind of blunt about it john landis at <laughs> sort of his irresponsible height but we haven't killed anybody yet so right. it's still okay for us to laugh about um it's not funny when we get to the twilight zone no um like and but that's the thing right you don't get Blues Brothers, if you don't just have that willingness to be insane and be like, hmm, wouldn't it be fun if we just, like, crashed 20 police cars right now? Like, sort of that wild frontline energy, right? Which obviously can go too far, and we saw it go too far eventually. But there it feels like it's just that perfect storm moment where it's not too much, it's just enough. Mm -hmm. And kind of going to that point where I talk about the shagginess, the car chase portion of it is the shagginess, right? Like the ending is just, it just keeps going and building and building. Like they don't kind of know where they're going with it, but they, I don't know. It feels like to me, they still do. 
And it never loses my attention, even as it's doing that, because it's throwing enough gags at me the whole time that I'm still on board with it. Um, But it's not a gag machine in the way that, say, like Airplane, which was released... 1980. 1980, same year. It's not that type of comedy, right? It's throwing jokes at you, but, like, just often enough to, like, pull you back in if the car chases are going a little bit long. Like... Think about like the mall sequence. Yeah. Right? I love the mall sequence. Like who does it? Who does it, right? <laughs> because what you do is because as a, there there's this whole chase sequence going on through a mall, they're dodging people, mm-hmm. they're smashing through windows and stores <laughs> and stuff, and then just a random non sequitur. Oh look, there's a sale. Oh, you know, and, oh the new the new Buicks are in. <laughs> Buicks are in. And and it's just like that's something you just do not expect. Or did not expect at the time from a scene like that where, you know, usually when there's a car chase sequence, it's all very hyped up and amped and their music is pounding and they're very serious about all the things they're doing. And here they are, these two guys in a beat up former <laughs> cop car driving through a mall and they're just, it's just another day to say- them. I was say it's taking that energy of a Smokey and the Bandit, right? This mm-hmm. kind of these exploitation kind of car flicks, but that had that humor edge to them, right? Mm-hmm. Because they had Bert, right? And Bert could bring that edge. And it's saying, look, what John and Dan are going to do, especially Dan, mm-hmm. is not what Bert does. But we're going to take that same idea, that idea that like these guys are going to be unflappable in the middle of this and just be willing to throw jokes at you because that keeps you on on your toes yeah. as you're watching it right like you can't just be like oh great another monotonous like you know uh, i can love a great car chase scene i love all the fast and furious films so clearly i do but that helps you to never forget ultimately the type of film you're watching right for me when i mean because i was 12 when it came out and in my household my dad had a humongous record collection that he'd collected over the years from the time that he was a teenager. So all of these artists that I had some exposure to, I knew who Aretha Franklin was. I just didn't know how important she was at the time. I knew who Ray Charles was. I just didn't know how important Ray Charles was. And the Blues Brothers was kind of my true introduction to all of these incredible musicians, Cab Calloway. Again, I had heard Minnie the Moocher, but how I knew Minnie the Moocher, because I was growing up in Los Angeles in the late 70s and early 80s, was actually from Oingo Boingo's version <laughs> from uh, Forbidden Zone. Uh, but I knew who Cab Calloway was, and I knew who all these artists were. And I, but I didn't know who Steve Cropper was. I didn't know who Duck Dunn was. I didn't know who all these guys were. So that kind of led me to learning about Stax Records and the Memphis Sound and all of them, which led me to Booker T and the MGs and, and you know, um, Sam and Dave. It's just, that's what the, what most, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to articulate, but it's just like, that's what it is to me is that it's, it's all of that stuff, but it was the gateway of bringing this incredible music to my attention that, I may not have discovered otherwise, especially being a 12-year-old wannabe punk in Southern California. 
listening to KROQ and having my friends in, in junior high with their tapes of those OC bands and, you know, and the stuff coming from Northern California like Op Ivy and, you know, you have the Angry Samoans. So that's where I was at the time. And then to hear all of this great blues music and, and just to have an extra avenue of music opened up to me that I might have been close to otherwise. And because I was such a huge fan of Saturday Night Live and that first moment when they come out as the Blues Brothers, they had done other skits that kind of led to there, but when they come out as the Blues Brothers that first time in 1978, it that was just a revelation. And so when they announced the movie, I was like, fuck yeah, I'm seeing that. And... <laughs> And it was rated R, and my dad kind of had a thing about rated R movies at the time, but he knew how much I loved Saturday Night Live, and especially the Blues Brothers. And I had the first Blues Brothers album, uh, got it through one of those uh, Columbia House penny sales. <laughs> oh yeah, no, 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 that's that's a lot of my father's record collection yeah. gave through similar things. And so, and so it was just like, that's what that movie means to me. More than the gags and more than those characters. It's just that bringing all that new music, new old music, to me was just is just something that I will treasure until the day I die. Well, and I think that that is one of the powers of the film, right? Is that that John and Dan cared and wanted to bring these artists forward and, mm-hmm. and felt that this was an important part of... They were like... We love this music, and we're doing this film to kind of celebrate this music. We know that we have that platform, mm. and we're going to use it for that. And it's so kind of heartening when artists do that, right? right. When we see artists who, when they get to a success point, to say, all right, it's time for me to bring everybody up behind who like is behind me or that I think is important, right. that I think deserves this spotlight, and I'm going to use my spotlight to pull them up with me. And because it's very easy to not do that, right? You can just kind of leave that aside. And you could have just done whatever John and Dan wanted to do. But they were like, no, if we're going to do this... We're going to do it right. We're going to do it right. Right. And we're going to get the right people. And we're going to make the best version of this. And that's why I say, like, you can love the crazy gags and the Landis stuff. But at the end of it, what the backbone of it is, is all those songs and all those performances, right? right? Hallelujah. <laughs> immediately, immediately with the James Brown, just, yeah. oh, it's, it's always, it's always and forever, like, because there's always a new 12-year-old mm-hmm. who's putting on that movie, and good Lord, if that movie doesn't play perfectly to 12-year-old, 12-year-old boy, 12-year-old <laughs> boys. That was a perfect time, that was a perfect time, perfect movie, the perfect time, and I got to see it at the drive-in. <laughs> perfect place, perfect movie, perfect time. It was fantastic. All right, so for yep. my 11 through 15, um, I've got Brazil, Raging Bull, The Road Warrior, Back to the Future, and Tron. Again, for most people, that is a top five. I was going to say, Brazil is one that just stood outside of the cut in terms of when I had to make this decision of favorite or best. Mm-hmm. I think Brazil is possibly the best film made in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. But I struggle to revisit it sometimes, not because I don't think it's brilliant, but because it's a hard movie in parts, right? right? Like, and that's by design. And I will never judge a movie more harshly for that, but it does make it sometimes harder to revisit, if you know what I mean. Oh, I know what you mean. But I, like, and again, like, what, for me, 
it's not just the movie itself, but it's the situation behind the movie. Because when Brazil came out, I was down here in Long Beach. I'd graduated high school. I was down here going to uh, Long Beach City College, which is literally like two miles from where I'm sitting right now. And I was an avid newspaper reader, so I would constantly read Jack Matthews's articles about the Battle of Brazil, which he <laughs> later kind of turned into a, a fantastic book that if you've never read, you should. But so the L.A. film critics name it the best film of the year, even though it hadn't played in theaters yet, which kind of forced Universal's hand. <laughs> and I was already on board anyway, being a Python fan and loving Time Bandits and the Monty Python movies and especially Gilliam's ver opening version of, of Meaning of Life, the... Uh, with the you know the the insurance people the, the yes yes Crimson the, Pim I the, forget the title yeah I I'm but but yes it, giant filing cabinets as pirate ships yeah. right just and, the, the genius genius so 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 mm. what happened was is like they finally release it on like Christmas Day it was literally rushed in the theaters like one theater in New York two theaters in Los Angeles including the Beverly Center where I was later a manager and we used to do Christmas in Palm Springs with um, a friend of my stepmom's. And so I was in Palm Springs for Christmas morning for the presents and then for Christmas dinner. And then I got into my VW Bug and drove all the way from Palm Springs to the Beverly Center, which is a good 90 miles or so, to make literally the last like 12.45 a.m. show. <laughs> Because all the other shows were sold out. So I literally, because this was one of the few theaters at the time that had an automated computerized box office, because back then you still had mostly punch and fold and you could only buy a ticket for the, the most current show. So that so a part of it, and then the, so I'm there waiting for hours in this literally abandoned otherwise shopping center because... Most of the stores are closed because it's Christmas. The you know, and the Beverly Center, the theater was on the top floor, the eighth floor of a eight-level shopping center and parking structure. So there's nothing else to do. There's no Starbucks. There's no. There was a Jerry's Deli that had an arcade next door to the theater that was closed. So you literally just sat there doing nothing for hours. So this movie better be fucking fantastic, and it was. And then I went to see it again like two days. I saw it like three or four times in just that first week or two when it was just playing at the Beverly Center. I forget what, there was like one theater in Orange County and then one theater in New York. But it's just like, and so as soon as it came out on, on Criterion, Laserdisc. I bought a Laserdisc player <laughs> so that I could own Brazil on Laserdisc. And then when it finally came out on the DVD with the uh, all the different versions, yeah. And I still revisit it to this day, 35 years later, because even though I know every gag in that movie and every scene and know exactly every punch, it still just gets to me. It never gets tired, no matter how many times I've seen it. Oh, it's, it, it just... It speaks to a quality of the filmmaking and the idea and that sometimes you can just kind of get that lightning thing, mm -hmm. right? Like, I love Gilliam's work. 
I hate to kind of say it, but just it's up to a point, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I think it, everybody loses their fastball at some point. Yeah. Um, some people don't. Some um, people don't. What up, Marty? Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I still go see. To your point, I can still go see every Scorsese movie. I saw the Irishman in the theater, and yet yeah, that that's still the fastball. Yeah, in fact, uh, <laughs> your your sister still holds me. Uh, we came down to Los Angeles in twenty seven sixteen. When Silence came out, it was playing at the uh, ArcLight in Hollywood, and it was new Scorsese, and I'm like, we're going, and then, I'm sorry, Silence is not that good of a movie. It's a beautiful film. I, it is a gorgeous film. I will well, concede that is a Marty that I missed. That was one that I was in a in between point in my life, and but so your I sister up- four years later still holds it against me. There's like four movies that I've taken her to that she holds against me. One of them is Kaena, the uh, Japanese anime movie from the early 2000s. Um, the other two I'm blanking at the moment, but she will bring up silence. Every time there is a movie that I want to see that she doesn't want to see that she doesn't have feeling for, she'll be like, silence. And that's all I have to say. And then there is actual silence because I have no response to that. It happens sometimes. Right. Sometimes we just, we whiff on them. And sometimes guys just make, sometimes people make bad movies. Mm-hmm. It's okay to make a bad movie. Making a bad movie doesn't make you a bad director. Right. Now making several bad movies means you might have become a bad director, but I'm never going to presume that on you made one bad film. Yeah, every, I mean, he, you know, from Jabberwocky to uh Loathing. Is is grade A. Yeah, everything um, in that range mm-hmm. is pretty much perfect, and everything after that is. The thing is, it's always still interesting, even if it doesn't hit those heights. Except Tideland. Yeah, <laughs> that one I have chosen to avoid. No, Tideland. I I got to see Tideland um, at the American Film Market in I want to say two thousand five or two thousand six before it came out in theaters. Uh, I was able to get a press screening pass for it. I went in excited, as I do with every Gilliam movie, or did do with every Gilliam movie. And I just was so disappointed because the visuals were there. The story was considerably lacking. And then he came back to a certain point with Parnassus. Yeah. He came back. To a certain degree, but that, you know, losing one of your stars. Yeah, no, and see, that's the thing, is I look at Parnassus and I'm like, that looks like Terry getting it together, and it breaks my heart that we don't have the full version of that with Heath, because I think that that would have held together better. He's doing the best he can with the fact that he lost his star and is adjusting on the fly, but, like, yeah, that has that kind of that feeling of the older, you know, of tapping back into that vein that sort but trying to maybe look at it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is incredibly valuable when an artist is willing to go back into their past and interrogate a little bit like this is how I would have approached a similar story like mm-hmm. this one way and now I approach it this different way because I'm older and I have different perspectives on life than I had when right. I was 35, you know, if if I'm a 65-year-old man, I would probably think and experience things differently, and 
I think that not only for the filmmakers, I think that valuable, but I think for the audience, that's incredibly valuable because then we have those two points of view to look at and say, which one do I think is leaning in a more correct direction? Right. right? And we can then take that to ourselves. And in that way, we provide that power to those ways of looking at the world. I don't know. That's a little, that's the rhetorical theorist in me coming out. So apologies. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> let's, let's get back on some more fun stuff. And okay. uh, I will throw one of mine out. That was one that you had in that chunk of your list. Um, and no, it's not Tron because Tron is so boring. Uh, we'll agree to disagree there. <laughs> I, okay, I will, I will admit that Tron is not a fantastic movie. It is very pretty. It is. I, but again, a lot of it goes back to I, I, where I was. No, and I listened to your episode yeah. about 1982 and I can absolutely see how because of what that meant to you as a teenager going to the movies in 1982 and how much stability that gave you, like, I see the value in that. Even if I, because then I don't come to Tron with that, right? Mm -hmm. I came to Tron and saw a 70 millimeter print at the Cinerama in Seattle. Mm -hmm. Beautiful print. Beautiful, beautiful theater. Beautiful theater. I love it. I, I, oh, I adore that theater. I I'm love that. I love the so, Cinerama so much because the only time that I've ever been to Seattle, was in 2014, we were there for um, a friend's birthday. Um, the friend lives in San Francisco, but they wanted to be in Seattle, so we flew to Seattle. But you weren't in Seattle at the time. Which nope. Is, um, and I specifically went to see The Hobbit at the Cinerama because they had just installed a laser projector at the time. Mm -hmm. And being a theater manager and knowing that laser was going to be the future of the industry I was working with in at the time, I wanted to experience that. And I was able to actually get the manager of the theater to give me a tour of the booth and to actually see the laser projector. And it was fantastic. I'm not a big fan of the Lord of the Rings movies. I'm not a big fan of the Hobbit movies. I watched them all out of a kind of, well, I saw this one, and I saw this one, and I saw this one, so I might as well see that one, and then I saw that one. So, you know, it was a sense of obligation, um, which I did not share with Harry Potter, because I really didn't like Harry Potter, where I gave up after uh, whichever one, uh, the sparkly vampire and... Uh, Doctor Who we're in. That is uh, the fourth one, Goblet okay. of Fire. Yeah, I gave up after that. I'm done. Um, but with The Hobbit, I felt, I, I, because because our friends are big fans of the series, I felt a certain obligation to see it. Um, but being able to go to the Cinerama and all the things they do there, with the chocolate popcorn and the and the special displays. Now, yeah. they didn't, they had some, some, materials from the hobbit but they also had like costumes from the batman movies and not 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 the dark knight movies the batman movies and stuff from paul allen's collection it, it was always so here's the bad news for your listeners the cinerama is no more what um so they have closed up shop earlier this year for and I'm going to air quotes here, the listeners will hear, renovations. Right. This was somewhat dubiously heard in the Seattle area. Since COVID has happened, they have said they are closed indefinitely. Mm -hmm. um, the odds that they are coming back is incredibly low. The reason that the theater survived as long as it did is because Paul Allen bought it. Right. 
because he loved going to movies there as a kid. They were going to level it. I know because I went the weekend before they were supposed to close for good the first time. Right. And saw Lawrence and 70 there because oh. they were like, we're going under. We're showing. Right. We're breaking the rig out and we're doing this. And I was like, I'm stopping on my way right. through because you always take that opportunity when it presents itself. Um, Alan was able to save it, but obviously with his passing um, last year, last year. Um, it had passed the trust and it was somewhat questionable how whether or not that was going to be something that stayed open. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it looks like they're pulling the plug on not only that, but a lot of the museum properties. Because a lot of why that existed was, to be frank, to give Paul Allen a tax write-off. Right. Because by showing his personal memorabilia in those places, mm-hmm. he could get a tax write-off right. from doing that. And it was great, right, to your point, as a person who would go to those movies, because then I would, you know, they would have costumes from Planet of the Apes right. or from Wrath of Khan. Right. Like, I saw them show Wrath of Khan in 70mm, and the only 70mm print that exists. By the way, if you're listening and someone says they're showing that, don't go see it. It's red. I'm not kidding. It's literally tinted red because of the vault that it ended up stored in. It's got, like, sand crystals on it, (laughs) which is terrible. I think they actually have pulled that print from circulation because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, man, that was a fun screening. Otherwise, right, like a Cinerama full of crazy Trekkies, like, losing their minds for this movie. And they had costumes out there. And so, yeah, I – that was my absolute favorite – theater in seattle and i'm there's a small part of me that hopes that closed indefinitely actually does mean they're going to try to reopen whenever the day comes that studios actually start giving real product back to theaters Mm -hmm. and that they think they can be open in seattle but i'm not really holding my breath which is kind of sad i mean i'm not i haven't been paying attention much to to other locations because you know i'm still waiting for my theater in los angeles to open are any theaters in Seattle open? In, in, are any indoor theaters in Seattle City open? No, okay. not presently. But okay. as I said, they were closed already for renovations. For renovations, air quotes, air quotes on that. Um, and that the quotes from the people around the app that it wasn't just Cinerama, right? That it was this whole sort of wing of Vulcan, right? The company Mm -hmm. that handled that stuff, that they just closed that wing of the company up, which is usually a universal sign that they're just going to jettison all those properties. Now we'll see what happens with that, but hopefully another angel investor comes along. I was going to say, hopefully another um, Seattle billionaire really loves the memories they have of going to see films there when they were a kid. (sighs) (laughs) But again, I'll say, movie I actually wanted to get to was um, Back to the Future. Back to the Future. And how that is one that I still will always put on because we talk about, like, what is it that makes these movies resonate? And in that case, I think it's just the fact that that is one of the most perfectly fine-tuned pieces of screenwriting Mm -hmm. ever. Like, every piece of that movie sets up every other piece, and pays off everything. Mm -hmm. Like, there's not anything there that's extraneous. It's all designed to deliver you some type of a payoff on some level. Right. And that goes to, and I've been listening to um, the Blank Check podcast, guys, and they've been doing a deep dive into Zemeckis' filmography. And I have, unfortunately, I haven't gotten to their Back to the Future episode yet, Mm -hmm. but they were talking about... um, 
Romancing the Stone, also right. another really fun Zemeckis movie. And the fact that he went off to do that rather than make Back to the Future at the time because he wanted to keep fine-tuning it and other things. But I'm like, I think that extra time, right, those years spent hmm. working that with him and Bob Gale help you to end up with the film that you have, right? I right. don't think you have that if they haven't taken that time to perfect that. And that's a strength of theirs as screenwriters, right? You can even see that in used cars, right? That, oh, that it, that used cars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because used cars shows that, right? That they've developed, even at that point, this ability to set up so many things in plain sight and then to pay them off at the end, right? The, the last 20 minutes of that movie is just them paying everything off that they've been giving you for the preceding hour and 20 minutes as they were telling you a pretty fun story. Mm -hmm. And Back to the Future is them perfecting that. Right. Every piece matters, and every piece is giving you something that's paying off to build this story. And inside that, you get technical marvels, and and this goes to the point of a point that came up on that Romancing the Stone episode is that they talk about that that may have sort of been a point where Zemeckis figured out how to handle actors because the actors nearly murdered him on set because mm -hmm. he wouldn't stop being like. But I need you to stand this way. Right. And they were like, but I can't act that way. And, like, I'll always be interested to see the Stoltz footage. I know you've talked about that before I, as well. I, I mean, just from the, the, just the nuggets that they've, they've put on things over the years. And it's just like, just, it, it doesn't matter what they have. You don't have to put it in any kind of cohesive storyline because there probably isn't because of the way that filming is done where you shoot in segments and you don't you don't go linearly with the from start of the script to the end of the script it doesn't matter just treat it like a bunch of deleted scenes where it's just one scene after the other just let us see what Stoltz was doing and let us judge for ourselves because no matter what no matter how good Stoltz may or may not be Fox was perfect for that role. And I can see why they wanted him in the first place. And then when a situation came up where the, the not replacement, but the person that they signed, because they couldn't get Fox, when, when Stoltz dropped out, going back to Fox and going to Gary Goldberg and working something out so that he could do both Family Ties and the movie at the same time, you know... Who knows what that did to him on a physical level, but and you know maybe they could have written more episodes without Alex or very little Alex Pete Keaton to 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 give him more time for the sh the movie, but there is the Fox as that character is absolutely the right call. I don't care. I want to see what Stoltz was bringing to it because Eric Stoltz still to this day to me is one of the best actors of his generation who never quite got his due. Uh, he seemed just much more comfortable mm -hmm. settling into that independent route, right. right? He, like, I think the movie star thing was there for him mm -hmm. if he wanted it. And I don't know if he did. And I think that's okay, right? Like, 
sometimes I think we have this perception of actors and how their careers are supposed to go, right? Because right. you get those couple smaller parts and you build those into a big role in a starring role in a big picture. I don't know that some people are always wired for that as like the choice that they want to make. Right. And sometimes it's not even necessarily like a, you know, a Daniel Day-Lewis, I'm so deeply embedded in my craft kind of thing. It's, right. it's literally just a, look, I like making movies at this level. I like working with people at this level. Mm -hmm. I think that I can help. At a certain point, it really does become, I can help people at this level, right? Because mm -hmm. if an Eric Stoltz is willing to be in your movie, that's going to help you get financing to actually get your fucking movie made. Right. And and mm -hmm. not, not to go to that point specifically, but yeah. it's like every time he shows up in a Cameron Crowe movie, it, it just it doesn't matter what he's doing it just puts a smile on my face you know because you know obviously he had that a very small role in in fast times he he was the star of wildlife and then he had a small role in say anything a small role in singles and he just kept showing up and then when he's not in a Cameron Crowe movie it's kind of disappointing, no matter how good the film is. And again, you know, Crow's another, and Zemeckis is another, who, you know, just like right out of the gate as a filmmaker was fantastic. And then they hit a certain plateau and they kind of just lost it. And I think that Zemeckis is maybe a little more interesting than Crow in the sense that I think Crow kind of lost it, but he's settled into something that he's comfortable doing, right? right? I mean, there's no Crow movie that I hate. I mean, even Aloha. I can admit it is his least movie. And I can admit it's not a great movie. But there's a lot of interesting things. And the whole the whole controversy about Emma Stone's characters, uh, genealogy, whatever, I that didn't bother me because that's not what the movie was about so much. But there's like there's enough of those Cameron Crowe moments with with Baldwin and with her and with all the and and. I, I'm not a big fan of Bradley Cooper. This is probably one of the Bradley Cooper movies I actually like. I was going to say, with Zemeckis, like, even after you get on the other side of um, Castaway, because mm -hmm. that's really sort of the end of the run, right. right? On the other side of Castaway, he decides, I'm doing mocap. <laughs> right? Like, the mocap movies come pretty much right after that. Mm -hmm. And then that's basically where... He stops being as important, I feel like, but he's always interesting, right? Because he, and it makes sense to me why he ended up in that, because to that point of romancing the stone, right? He's telling the actors to end up, or just like only caring that you hit your spot at mm -hmm. this point. Right. And you have to hit that spot, and if you don't hit that spot, the shot's wrong. And he's always been hung up on that technical end. And so I think that he moved in that direction, that mocap direction, because that was what he was deep, always going to be fascinated by. And I think that's still, you can even see that in something like Welcome to Marwin, right? Like, Which I never saw. I haven't seen it either, but I can even just look at the trailers and be like, this is a dude who is interested in pushing boundaries and doing things, but like is also still a deeply sort of idiosyncratic, he is himself, right? He's mm -hmm. still writes his own stuff in a lot of ways. I mean, to be completely honest, I couldn't even tell you the last Zemeckis movie I've seen 
in theaters, on video. I, I honestly, I'm sitting here racking my brain. I can literally tell you that it was Castaway for me. Yeah, I, I haven't seen Castaway. I haven't seen What Lies Beneath. You should see that. It's, it's, but there's, there's, a, there's a certain point, and, and, and it's Forrest Gump. I hated <laughs> Forrest Gump so much that I, it just churned me off of him forever. I, and, and I know he made a movie after that that I saw. Um, was it Contact? Did he make Contact? He made Contact. Okay, Contact, Contact was and Contact, Contact was is, a good movie. Contact is the follow up to Forrest Gump, and Contact is a great film. Yeah, but but it's just like but even after that, I just like nothing he made after after Contact kind of interested me. And Forrest Gump still to this day holds such a deep hatred in my soul. There are <laughs> so many things that are wrong with that movie. On so many levels, there are entire sequences that you can pull out of that movie, and the only thing you'd lose is running time. I'm not going to disagree with you. It's been many years since I revisited Forrest Gump, and that's a very intentional choice on my part, right? Like, I revisit a lot of Zemeckis movies. I deeply miss, and this goes to a point that the Blank Check guys brought up, is I miss... This idea of Zemeckis before he became this Oscar guy, right? Mm -hmm. When Zemeckis was cranking out things like Back to the Future, or even, I'll go with one of my favorite deep cuts, Death Becomes Her. Which, I'm getting the look from you that you're not as deeply in love. One of the things about working at a theater, that when you're playing back then, you would play movies for months. Yes. And so... You know, and, but the thing is that when I saw Death Becomes Her, I don't know what it was. It just did not appeal to me. And and so, but the thing is that because I'm working in a theater, I have the opportunity to go into a theater for 15, 30 minutes at a time if I'm on a break. And I can, you know, dissect what it is. Um, the first time I saw Unforgiven, I was so bored by it that I actually, like, sat in the back of it. The theater was empty. Uh, I saw it in Marina del Rey, um, and the theater. So, and this was when I was a smoker. I literally would just kind of sit in the back row, and I would just smoke it. I was just smoking in the theater, which you're not supposed to do. Um, and I was, I was just bored, so bored that I would just light. I just kept smoking, and it's like I want to die now. <laughs> and 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 you know, years later, I revisited Unforgiven. Uh, but my theater didn't play Unforgiven because the Beverly Center, where I was at the time, we had a theater across the street, which was a general cinema called the Beverly Connection. They played Unforgiven. We didn't. So I only saw Unforgiven the one time. I never had a chance to kind of go in and dissect it. But then there would be times where um, I'd have a movie like Bob Roberts, where I loved Bob Roberts the first time I saw it, and I'd be able to, and I'd be able to time, knowing how knowing the movie, I saw it, Parts of it so many times, I knew exactly when certain bits would be coming on, and I'd kind of sneak over to that theater, pop my head in for five minutes, and wait for that gag that just interested me, or the the, the song bit, because those songs for Bob Roberts, I know it's a 1992 movie, but you know that that's one of the things that was great about working in movie theaters that you could really dissect scenes and you what you you know. So if you were playing a Back to the Future, you were playing. Even a Star Trek Four, which I, I'm not a big fan of, but there were scenes in the movie that I genuinely enjoyed, and then I'd be like, okay, I know when that scene's coming up, and pop my head in there and watch it. I know that's going way off track, but with Zemeckis, it's just you know, 
a couple of years ago, I was taking a movie back to the library uh, that we, uh, we had, you know, checked out. And they were having a big, you know how libraries from time to time have a big sale? Yeah. They're just getting rid of merchandise. Yeah. And, and so I was looking at the, uh, I was looking at the DVDs and it was just kind of, and then I saw, I want to hold your hand. Now this was the older Universal release, not the newer Criterion release. Yeah. So maybe they were getting rid of it because the Criterion was coming out. But come on, I want to hold your hand for a quarter? Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, like, as one of those, like, difficult things to get your hands on. Yeah. And it, again, goes to that point of Zemeckis comes out of the gate and he has this perfectly formed idea of how to be a visual filmmaker, mm-hmm. how to tell stories, how to do comedy. Yeah. And then just at a certain point, he abandons that in this sort of misguided view of, like, Oscar cinema or respectable cinema. And it's... Or trying it's, to push a boundary. Or, or, or then when he doesn't get that. Oh, that's right. it. The last Zemeckis movie I saw was Polar Express. And <laughs> damn, that movie was, was no matter how much of a technical marvel it may have been, it just was not good. And that's that's the thing, right? I think that he gets that Forrest Gump high and he tries to do these number of films that are supposed to be these serious sort of award contender films. He cranks mm-hmm. them out one right after another in Contact, What Lies Beneath, and especially Castaway, right? Mm-hmm. Castaway is the big shot at it. And he gets rebuffed by the Academy repeatedly by that. And so he says, to hell with this. Mm-hmm. And then just commits to this technical filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile... As oh, a- wait, hold on. See, this is the thing. Is that now we're talking about it, it's like, no, Beowulf. <laughs> I actually saw Beowulf, and again... That predates I, Polar Express. That's actually... No, 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 because I saw Polar... No, because I saw Polar Express when, when Cassie and I were living in New York, and and then I saw uh, Beowulf at um, at what was ne- what's now the Rave 18, but when then was still the, um, the Cinema Deluxe, uh, National Amusements, um, in 2007, because I went uh, because that was a special NATO screening uh, for NATO members, and uh, but yeah, but just like again, but that's how much I I dismissed Zemeckis in my mind as a filmmaker after after Forrest Gump is that I can't even remember the movies I I've seen of his until we're talking about it. No, and see, then that becomes the problem and it becomes so frustrating as a fan because i still go back getting this kind of back on track to back to the future Mm -hmm. i go back to back to the future and i'm like here is this guy who just gets it Mm -hmm. and even with the sequels if i don't think they are as perfect of films i don't think they're often as bad as people give them a lot of guff for right Mm -hmm. i think the second one suffers because it front loads a lot of the stuff that people like the least right Mm -hmm. it's trying to do this sort of empire style thing with its sequel and it front loads all that darkness because you've got all the future stuff that's not great and then you get the alternate 1985 stuff that's the really dark part and what bums me out about that is that i love the last hour of that movie because it gets back to that perfect rube goldberg machine design thing that zemeckis and gale excel at when they have to double back in time to 1955 right right that final sequence of the film is so good mm-hmm. it actually makes me in retrospect like not hate them as much for the right. stuff that comes early and then the three is, and then three is just a fun time of a film yeah it's just a good time of like okay we've built this giant puzzle how the hell are we going to solve it we're going to spend a whole movie untangling this knot we've built by putting ourselves in this situation mm-hmm. and that feels 
very them, right? It's a very writing exercise thing of like, okay, your characters are stuck in X. Mm. How do you get them out of that? Right. And they can just sit there and build that out and build that out and build an entire film around that ability of trying to solve what is that core problem. Right. It's a, the, the, the Back to the Future trilogy is like the inverse of this, the Star Wars original trilogy where the first one is great. The second one, of course, Empire is the best of the Star Wars movies and Back to the Future is the least. And then the third one is almost as good as the first one, but of course, inverse to the, the second one, it's either, but it's not clearly, you know, Jedi, good movie, not nearly as good as the other two. Back to the Future 3, very good movie, a lot better than two, not quite as good as one. And I think that it suffered, and I think it really does suffer from this idea that I think they really did want to take it in a different direction, mm -hmm. and I don't know that the audience wanted to go there mm -hmm. with them. And I, I forgive them for that in hindsight, but I also remember seeing it as a kid, because that released by the time that I was old enough, I was going to movies. Right. Um, and yeah, alternate 1985 scared the crap out of me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, I didn't like that. Like, why was George dead? <laughs> but now in hindsight, I get what they're going for as right. filmmakers, but I also understand why the audience got turned off by that because back to the future is not that in any way right it is this bright shiny gleaming love letter to the 50s and also is this perfect adventure like dopamine machine because mm -hmm. it's paying things off for you constantly and back to the future is is a chocolate sundae uh back to the future 2 is like the darkest espresso with absolutely no sugar or anything else. It's just the most bitter, darkest drink. And then you get back to three, which is maybe a, the, a, the same Sunday, but maybe they didn't put enough chocolate syrup on it. Yeah. And, it's, but it's just like, but it's just like, it's such a tonal shift. And, and yeah, it, it might've been necessary to get from A to B to C, but maybe it was a little too dark. It, it feels more like the guys who made used cars showed up <laughs> to make Back to the Future 2 right. because they've got a real dark view on people. Yeah. And that, and it's weird because their stuff goes back and forth on that, right? Like, I want to hold your hand or sweet used cars. Very, very not sweet. Very not sweet. <laughs> like sweet in its own way, but very cynical about the world. Back to the Future, very positive, upbeat, Back to the Future, a bit more cynical, Back to the Future 3, much more upbeat, Death mm. Becomes Her, again, very cynical as a film. Right. And then we just get into the weird Oscar baby stuff that's right. not really of that chunk, That and that's the, that's the filmmaker I miss. Mm -hmm. And that's the filmmaker that I love seeing when I go back and I watch Back to the Future, okay. and know that that's there for me as, as something that will always put me in the right mood, right? That it delivers at just the right set pieces. And I'll even forgive it. It's uh, casual racism for allowing a white boy to uh, invent rock and roll. Yeah. All right, so uh, my number six through ten list, according to Flick Charts, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, strangely and sadly, at this time, the only foreign movie on my list, Wings of Desire, number seven. Yeah. Uh, again, Blues Brothers at eight. Say Anything at number nine. And um, a 
Marty movie, but not the highest rated Marty movie, uh, The Last Temptation of Christ. I'm not going to fight you on that. I'm also definitely not going to fight you on Wings of Desire, which I think is genius. Um, I think that both get at these ideas of spirituality and the questions that we ask of ourselves, right? Like, obviously, Marty's always been very consumed by that. And mm -hmm. I think that Vendors is interested in it, but he's also interested in it as a way of... It really struck me. So I watched Wings of Desire very recently, within the last couple of years, for mm -hmm. the very first time. And it struck me how much it was this letter of a city that would shortly never be the same, mm -hmm. right? That it's this amazing snapshot of Berlin right before the wall comes down. Right. And you get this idea that he can feel that too, right? That that's just part of the undercurrent of all this. And mm -hmm. so we're asking like, what does this change, change mean in life and applying the spirituality to that? I guess why it just, it works so deeply for me. And, but then you get the fun of the Peter Falk. Yeah. Right? Like, and that helps to leaven that, like, you're having those big, deep, serious thoughts. And then it's like, and here's a man being like, it's just down to the coat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and for me, I find it kind of strange that I have those two movies amongst my top ten because I am an atheist. So I am not responding to the religious aspects of Last Temptation. I, you know, I know the stories because even though I've, you know, I've been an atheist most of my life, I was never a Catholic or a Christian or whatever, but I've read enough of the Bible to know the stories. What I'm responding to with both movies are the visuals and the sound design and the music and the general story. And, you know, for me whatever Jesus's last temptation was is almost immaterial to me because of my lack of, of religious doctrine. And, 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 but you know, but you know, I hear those, the Peter Gabriel music and again, and also part of it is, is takes me back to that first show, which I've talked about, I think on, on a previous episode where you know, just the insanity of driving from Santa Cruz to San Francisco, which is which is a 90-mile drive, at 4 in the morning to make sure we are the first in line to see it on that first show that first day, and then even getting there at, at 5.30 in the morning discovering we're not the first in line. <laughs> and then the absolute madness of the circus. I don't know if you've ever seen footage of the protests I outside seen. of the... North, specifically the North Point Theater in San Francisco, which is where me and Randy and Dave and our, my friends saw it. But it's just the, 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 just, and then going into the theater and seeing the first four rows of the theater completely blocked off and literally 20 security guards <laughs> standing between the front four rows that are blocked off and the screen because there were legitimate threats of violence made to the theater they're gonna come and slash the the screen they're gonna burn the theater down god is going to smite everybody in the building and and so and then and then watching this beautiful love story to a deity because that's what it is i mean scorsese clearly loves jesus 
Oh, and I, I was going to say, right, like to your point, you're rattling off all of the things that we all famously know as mm-hmm. the, the protests and the, the vitriol towards the film. Yeah. And the vitriol is so misplaced because, and I will say, I, I'm presently what I would call a secular humanist, but I was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. right? I did the whole thing. And so I tap into that. And I get where Scorsese is coming from mm-hmm. with that, with that as your background and, and iconography that is just imbued in your soul, really, right? E- even if I don't actively think about it, right? Even just that kind of iconography and, and imagery is going to end up evoking that. Right. And I can tell that he's trying to evoke that, but to your point, he's evoking it in a very loving way. That film ultimately is a celebration of this idea that Jesus could have had all these things and gives them up in the end because he understands the power and the necessity of that to save people Mm -hmm. and that that is the more worthy thing and that the film is communicating that to you as well Mm -hmm. and saying this person is to be valued because he made this sacrifice that he this idea that it has to be blasphemous because it shows this version of Jesus with children and a family that ultimately undergirds the sacrifice that makes him even greater mm. as a deity or a person, right? right? Like, as a person inside the story that the film is telling, or if you're a person of a religious belief, as Scorsese is, mm. that that's what he's trying to say. And people who were protesting or were protesting the novel just missed that point of the story, and that was... It, that film was one of my dad's favorite movies, and he was similar to me, raised Catholic, and when it came out in the 80s, it really impacted him mm-hmm. because he was very lapsed in his faith, but it communicated to him all the things that he thought were best about the story of Jesus, right? right? That idea of sacrifice and love, and love for everyone, leading you to be willing to make sacrifices that are so great. The ultimate sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, like literally to give up everything, to give up your life, in the name of love for everyone like that to him was the important lesson and i think that's the important lesson to marty mm-hmm. and i think that that's one of the single most important lessons that even if you don't believe that jesus christ is the son of god and all of that right mm-hmm. like that's still a powerful moral lesson right to take from the film morality does not depend on religiosity right and i think that that film helps to show that mm-hmm. And for that, I am so grateful to it. And I mean, also just a fantastic Willem Dafoe performance, of course. Right. The middle. But, like, yeah, that that's why that movie, that's another one that I deeply love. And that's why it resonates with me. And when you kind of put Wings of Desire there with it, it just, those two kind of make me think of that similar thing, right? There's the idea of sacrifice for love. Mm-hmm. And that as a high moral calling. I think that that has value. And I think that those films are both beautiful and moving representations of that. Right? Yeah, I, I, it's It's been years since I've seen Last Temptation. Um, just because I have so many other movies to catch <laughs> up on. But again, it's one of those movies that that might not resonate with me on the level that Scorsese intended. But it still resonates me because there are universal truths within that story that are not dependent upon a specific religious viewpoint. No. And that's why it will still be, no matter how long I'm still around, 
it'll still be one of my favorite Scorsese's. There, there's, you know, and and not because of what Scorsese intended, but because of those universal aspects. I think that that is what you get when you have a great filmmaker working with something that really matters to them. And then the funny part is, I actually tried to read the Kazanzaka's book after I saw the movie, and um, I couldn't get through it. It's like how some people feel about um, David Foster Wallace. That's what Kazanzakis was to me <laughs> as like a 22-year-old in 1989 or 21-22-year-old whenever the or whenever I read the book after the movie. It's just like it was just this unpenetrable wall because maybe it was because it was translated from Greek and maybe the wording was different. But I don't, I don't know. But again, because I am not a religious person, I've never been a religious person, whatever Scorsese was able to pull out of the book that appealed to him, I couldn't, it, it was a wall. And there, there's, there's a bunch of books that are, are very famous books that, again, there's just a wall that I hit that I just, I, I can't penetrate. Some things are like that. I I ran into a similar situation with uh, the original book of Train Spotting, mm. the Irvine Welsh, right. um, because it's got. I don't, have you ever read it? No. Uh, so it is written in a style that I would best describe as a Cormac McCarthy style style of writing, which is mm. to say that it is done in appropriate vernacular and if you've ever tried to read a thick ass scottish accent let me tell you it's not a pleasant experience basically you have to figure it all out phonetically mm -hmm. in your head as you do it right so that was basically why i walled into that book because i'm like this is great and i'm getting a lot from it mm -hmm. but i think i'm just gonna go with danny boyle's version yeah. because i can put on subtitles and understand what they're saying right I'm struggling with you writing this out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I remember I love Train Spotting the movie when it came out, and when Criterion released it on Laserdisc, like a year later, um, it actually came with a uh, two-page like translation, so that you know, so you could understand not only what they were saying but what it meant. Because for whatever reason, Miramax and and Criterion felt that the maybe the movie was too Scottish for uh, for the audiences to understand, even though the movie had already come out and already been a hit. I was gonna say, so they gave you the Dune vocabulary. They sheet? They gave you the Dune vocabulary <laughs> sheet. Exactly, but, but only but I don't know, but not with the VHS. But only with the Criterion Laserdisc. Yeah, not to the general audience, but to the very hyper-specific audience. Very, very hyper-specific. Unlike the Dune vocabulary sheet where we just gave that to every ticket buyer, which, are we going to be doing that again next I, year? I don't care. I I, I, I do. I do. Well, I deeply care. <laughs> I, and again, Dune is another one of those books that, you know, there just I could not penetrate it. I didn't care about any of the characters. I didn't care about any of the situations. It was all, and I understand that it's a lot of it is allegory and metaphor. I just did not care. And then I, I, I saw the, I saw Lynch's version in '84. I, I, I opening night, seven o'clock show, Forty First Avenue Playhouse in Capitola. I was a senior in high school. I went with my friends, and I go and buy my ticket. I don't know, five or six bucks at the time. And 
they, I've got to do some fucking homework before the movie. I got 15 minutes to read all of this shit before the the, the lights go down and the curtain opens, and and even during the movie. Now back then, remember, we didn't have cell phones and with flashlights, and so I'd be like turning around to use the light reflected from the screen to look something up during the movie, because again, I'm just like, what the fuck is going on here? And then I, I watched it. Right there on that TV that's next to us, two months ago, and without the benefit of the sheet, and all I could do was, I went back to that 17-year-old who was pissed off about having to fucking study before he watched a fucking movie. So I'll say, the David Lynch Dune movie is, like, fundamentally broken, because Dune is too big to be trying to fit into what they're doing, which is why I appreciate what, um... Villeneuve is doing with with it um, and that they're splitting it I will also recommend if you've struggled and bounced off of it I have had I had had similar experiences mm-hmm. with it full cast audio drama versions of it are far easier to get into because then you have people as actual characters mm-hmm. um, with performances and it helps you to delineate yeah. now I'll admit that the narration is a lot and there's a lot of it's but very it, dense. It's very dense, but it gets to a really interesting place. And mm-hmm. that's why, like, it's why the people who love it as deeply as we do, do. Because, mm-hmm. like, I get why it's it's something it's very easy to bounce off of. Mm-hmm. But kind of once you're able to get into it and you realize what the sort of central allegory and, like, the central premise of, like, the overarching story mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Um, God, it's so, so good. Um, and I'm also just, I'm deeply a fan of, um, Villeneuve as a director. Right. I, I think he's a fantastic director. I put it this way. I never would have thought somebody could make a high quality sequel to Blade Runner, let alone something that I thought was maybe not equally a masterpiece, but a, you know, a truly great film. Mm-hmm. And he did. We're going to go ahead and stop here for the time being. This conversation went on for more than two more hours. So rather than have a three plus hour podcast, I'm going to break this conversation up into three parts. The second part of this conversation will be posted in a couple of days. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens with special guest. Michael Horrigan. As we are an independent podcast without a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast sources. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which help the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The FilmJerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Good night.